Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we're at UKSEM, a big sports and exercise medicine conference in London. Amongst many interesting advanced sporting and medicine topics, there are a few lessons for all of us. We'll start with Daniel Lieberman, a professor of evolutionary biology at Harvard University. You're known for your work on barefoot running, but you know, your, your background in evolutionary biology helped set the stage for, for this whole conference about how we have been a product of evolution to require us to do much more exercise than mm-hmm. we do in our modern world. So could you just sort of tell us that story? Sure. We live in a very abnormal world today where people basically sit all day long and they ride cars or subways to work and take elevators or lifts to their floor and, and really do very little work. But that's extremely unusual. For for millions of years, we were hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherers, every single day of their lives, have to walk and run, they have to climb, they have to dig, they have to do exercise. In fact, a typical female hunter-gatherer walks 9 kilometers a day, and a typical male hunter-gatherer walks 15 kilometers a day. And even farmers, so farming was invented, what, uh, about 12,000 years ago. But until recently, even farmers had to work very hard. But now, since the industrial era, we live in a world of mechanization. We live, we have machines do our work for us. And that causes a lot of illness because our bodies are designed through evolution to be endurance athletes. We're very good at walking. We're very good at running. And if you remove exercise from the human body, that causes a pathological condition, which leads, leads to a wide range, range of problems. Mm. You had an extraordinary slide in your presentation which showed humans' ability to run over time, endurance running, mm. compared to quadrupeds, uh, ponies, horses, dogs. Could you tell us about that? So our ancestors started walking maybe about 6 million years ago or so. And as soon as we became upright bipeds, we lost the ability to gallop. At first, we were very good at climbing trees and walking. And at some time, maybe around 2 million years ago, uh, we think that uh, humans evolved the ability to run long distances. And we have lots of features in our bodies, literally from our heads to toes, that make us really good. And a hypothesis as to why that happened, why we evolved this ability to get really good at running, is that it helped us uh, do hunting. In particular, it's called persistence hunting. Because it's important to remember that technology, projectile technology, such as the bow and arrow, uh, even stone spear points were invented very recently. The stone spear point was invented maybe 300,000 years ago. The bow and arrow was invented less than 100,000 years ago. So for millions of years, our ancestors hunted with nothing more lethal than a, a sharpened stick or a club. And a hypothesis is that that our running ability enabled us to do persistence hunting. Humans are very good at running at speeds that make animals gallop. And we cool by sweating, but the way in which animals cool is by panting. But when animals, quadrupeds, uh, run at a gallop, they can't pant. So if you make an animal gallop for 10, 15, 20 minutes when it's very hot, you drive that animal into a state of hyperthermia. You chase an animal, often a big one. And it, of course, gallops away and hides in the bushes, and then, you've, and then you track it and then chase it again at a gallop speed. So it's a combination of running, walking, chasing, tracking. And so Dennis Bramble and I, and also David Carrier from the University of Utah, have argued that this explains why we have short toes and arches in our feet and Achilles tendons and large gluteus maximuses and all sorts of other features in our bodies which make us really good at endurance running. You showed a video which kind of illustrated that really well, and I'm surprised by how few calories were burnt up in that mm. process. People often run to lose weight, and they're disappointed often that they don't lose as much weight as they think they will because we're actually so good at running 
that uh, typically uh, running at an endurance speed is between 30 and 50% more costly per unit distance than, than walking at your optimal speed. If you're going to walk 15 kilometers, for a typical person, it's about 1,000 calories. If you run that distance, it's maybe 1,400 calories. It's basically like taking a McDonald's hamburger and adding the fries. That's it. Mm. You mentioned there some of the evolutionary adaptations we've had that maximize our ability to do this endurance running. Um, could you sort of sketch a few more of them for us? We are so good at endurance running and actually athleticism in general for a whole suite of features. So we have short toes, which which minimize the, 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 the bending forces that act in the foot. We have a spring in our feet, the arch. When you hit the ground, 17% of that energy in a run you actually get that energy back so you don't have to use your muscles. The Achilles tendon saves you about 35% of the work that your muscles would otherwise have to do by acting like a spring. You have you have tons of springs in your legs. All those tendons in your legs help us uh, run basically like kangaroos. So uh, when humans run, actually, we have a nearly flat cost of transport. That means if you run at, uh, at 3 meters a second, 4 meters a second, or even 5 meters a second, it costs you the same approximately to run the same distance. We have very long legs, which save us energy. We have a nice waist that help us turn our bodies. We have uh, semicircular canals on our head that sense pitching forces very acutely. We've lost a lot of the muscles of the shoulder, which help us use our arms to, to swing differently from our legs and keep us stabilized. You know, I could go on. Um, and, of course, sweating. You know, we, we are the world champion sweaters. We've lost our fur. We have the typical human has 5 to 10 million sweat glands that enable us to lose enormous amounts of heat while running. Uh, our bodies are, are really loaded with features that make us superlative long-distance uh, athletes. So, evolution has set us up to run. But our society these days does all it can to minimise effort. Steve Blair from the University of South Carolina has been studying how physical inactivity affects our health. Right. If we go back uh, millions of years and through the hunter-gatherer period of human beings, we were much more physically active. We had to be to survive. And in the last, uh, really almost the last couple of generations, we've just been more successful in engineering the need to be physically active out of life. And whether that's at work, whether it's for transport or for leisure time. So we've dramatically changed uh, within our lifetimes uh, the amount of energy that people have to spend to to stay active. Mm. Do you have any numbers about the the difference and maybe the number of calories you burn now compared to in the past? Uh, In the last 50 years in the United States, the average man spends 140 calories fewer each day than they did 50 years ago. The decline in occupational energy expenditure in women has been 120 calories a day, which is more than enough to explain the obesity epidemic. So this is just one aspect of life where we've you know, used labor-saving devices and in- engineered movement and energy expenditure out of existence. You've published extensively on the health benefits of exercise, uh, and you found that it, you don't have to be super fit or running 15 kilometers a day to make a real difference to, to mortality over time. That's right. In our work, we've identified low fitness as the bottom 20%. And if you actually look at most of the research from physical activity epidemiology, we find that that high-risk group constitutes, depending on the study, 
15 to 25 percent of the least active or the least fit in individuals. Now, that's still an awful lot of people, but you just get out of that bottom group. You don't have to become a marathon runner. You don't have to play football 60 minutes every day. Just become moderately active. Three 10-minute walks a day, five days a week, will get you into the category that we've called moderate fitness and reduces your risk of dying by 50 percent. I mean, to put your public health hat on, perhaps. How do we get people to to change their behavior, to to start doing that, that limited amount of exercise that will make a massive difference? Well, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but once we burn up all the oil, and I think people are going to have to walk more, <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's a solution. But let, let's not wait for that. Uh, let's, let's try to make our communities more walkable. Let's encourage people to look for opportunities to be physically active, starting with children and right on, on up to uh, uh, elderly uh, individuals. And I think we have to bring behavioral science and psychologists more into our efforts in medicine and in public health efforts, in worksite programs, to help people learn the cognitive and behavioral skills that are required to change behaviors. And whether that's changing your physical activity behavior or flossing your teeth or eating your fruits and vegetables, some of the same strategies apply. And as an individual, How's the best way to, to try and motivate yourself to do that? Well, one of the principles, one of the behavioral principles is self-monitoring. So if you want to change a behavior, it helps to know where you are in that particular behavior at this time. So for physical activity, we have these wonderful devices called step counters or pedometers or accelerometers that can give us an objective measure of how active or Conversely, how inactive you are. And many sedentary individuals, the low fit people that we describe, are probably taking 3,500 to 4,500 steps a day. That's really pretty sedentary. If you're really determined to be extremely sedentary, you can get by with even fewer steps uh, than that. But three, 4,000 steps is sedentary. So wear the pedometer, find out where you are. If you're already getting 15,000 steps a day, fine, good on you. It's, uh, you're getting enough activity. But let's say you're getting 5,000 and you say, well, I, I heard that you need to get eight to 10,000 to really get uh, important health benefits, then set a goal goal. This week you got 4,500. How many do you think you could get next week? And you don't necessarily go to 10,000. You know, make a big jump in one week. Set an an attainable goal. I think I can put in maybe a thousand more steps a day. Then you've got the pedometer to check that. Are you making progress? And if you hit that goal, then you say, ah, well, next week maybe I could do a thousand more until you get up to that eight to 10,000. If you fail to achieve your goal in one week, then you should do problem solving. What happened? What got in the way? Why you, you had this goal, you wanted to do it, but you didn't reach the goal. And an answer might be, well, I just had these extreme deadlines at work, or, or maybe I was sick, I couldn't. Okay, fine. You, as soon as you recover and you're not sick, then you can get back. Or will your work continue at the same level? Or, and if so, then find out ways to fit those 10-minute walks into your schedule. Now, I am amused in the United States, probably the same here. If you ask people, do you think activity is good for you? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, are you active? Well, no, I'm not. Why not? I don't have enough time. So then I say, do you have a television in your house? Well, of course, I have four televisions and only two people live there. How many hours a day do you watch that television? And in the U.S., this is three to four hours a day. 
So let me get this right. Three or four hours a day of watching television, and you don't have time for three 10-minute walks. So I often say, walk during the commercials, and you'll get your 30 minutes a day. For the very slothful, just a little bit of exercise is much better than none. But what if you want to become fit and healthy without necessarily being a marathon runner? Kerem Khan, BJSM's editor, covered that in his talk. The biggest bang for the buck is definitely 30 minutes, and it's even the first 15 minutes. So that's why we're so adamant to get people moving, and Steve Blair makes that argument very well. My point is for those people who are thoughtful and um, have some health literacy, and they appreciate the benefits of physical activity already, and then they say, how much should I do? And then I encourage them to saying you'll get a tremendous boost in those benefits for the second half hour, and then it diminishes after that. And so I've converted in this my personal goal, which is that I will accumulate 60 minutes of physical activity a day, which can be in 10-minute bouts or quarter-hour bouts. And in this way, I know that I've reduced my risk of cancer, for example, from 30% to 50%. If it was a pill, people had one pill sitting there or two pills, they'd take two pills for sure. Mm. And so I just don't understand why more people don't accumulate the second 30 minutes of physical activity a day when this gives them another 20% reduction in risks of death and other chronic diseases. Steve talked about just walking, just moving um, as being you know, enough to, to, to help people. I mean, in the same way as doing 60 is better than 30, is going for a run better than going for a walk? Is running a marathon better than that? You know, is there... Does the kind of exercise make a difference? Absolutely. Intensity is a factor that will improve fitness further. And Steve Blair has very nice data showing that fitness is the best predictor of longevity, preventing mortality. So the mantra of some is good and more is better can be applied to intensity where being walking faster, potentially jogging, cross-country skiing faster, that is more beneficial than a slow activity. So that sort of exponential drop-off in gains as well? That does apply. Intensity can be thought of the way we think of duration. The analogy would be to think of an Olympic athlete where if they can run a mile faster than a jogger, that wouldn't give them tremendous extra benefits in terms of longevity and health benefits. So the consistent message is something's better than nothing, but adding more minutes will give you even more value. Using your minutes with more intensity will give you more value. And that is underscored in the guidelines because the guidelines say 150 minutes a week of moderate activity or 70 to 75 minutes of vigorous activity. So that's reflected in the guidelines. I mean, a barrier to, to doing this thing is people are so busy, you know, actually taking the time to exercise as opposed to doing something else might seem a bit of a, a, a chore to, to lots of people. I've had experience in clinics where I've had to counsel people who haven't had any recent physical activity experience. They're not regular sporting people. And I've, I've counseled them about being physically active. And I've found that once they realise that one doesn't have to do the activity continuously, it can be broken up into 10 or 15 minute bouts, then they feel more encouraged. And what I also tell them is that they can sit as much as they like, they can lie down as much as they like, but I like them to limit it to 23 and a half hours a day. And then I just do that very seriously and pause and say, if you can just limit your lying and your sitting to 23 and a half hours a day, you'll have made a great difference to your health. 
and often then they start to see, well, actually, that seems pretty reasonable. And then we push it to limiting them to 23 hours a day. And then they have fantastic health benefits because we know if you limit your sitting and standing to 23 hours a day, then you move into the moderate fit group and Steve Blair's data. And so you halve your risk of mortality and chronic diseases. That's all for this week. Next week is World AIDS Day. And we have the director of the WHO's program on HIV AIDS joining us in the studio. Also, men's health. Who does it best? Join us then.